Good morning again. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. 1 Peter 3 verses 13 through 17. We're taking a brief break from Acts today, but in God's providence, both our passage and our message largely flow out of what El preached on last week in Acts 17, calling us to be better witnesses of Jesus for the watching world. And before we dive into the text, it's important to understand what is happening here in 1 Peter. See, 1 Peter is filled with discussions of suffering and persecution, not just in the past or in the present, but in the future. Peter's likely writing on the eve of the Neronian persecution in Rome. Nero was the Roman emperor who actually lit up his garden parties with Christians. He turned Christians into flaming torches. So Peter's audience has experienced some level of suffering and persecution, but it's about to intensify. So if suffering is what they could expect, then Peter is answering the question, how do Christians live in the midst of suffering? It's not a question of if you'll experience suffering, but when you'll experience suffering. Peter is saying that every Christian will suffer to some degree. So the question is, what do you do when you suffer? Now, in chapter 3 as a whole, Peter is providing a basic pattern for Christian conduct. In general, how are Christians supposed to live? And in our passage today, he's going to specifically describe how Christians are to live in the midst of suffering. Would you please pray with me before we read God's Word? Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that it's living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. Father, that it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Holy Spirit, we need your help now to even read your word correctly. Would you enable me to speak truth? Would you enable me to speak clearly? Heavenly Father, would you open our hearts and minds to hear the good news of the gospel from the letter of 1 Peter today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So please turn your attention with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. This is God's word. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Amen. This passage is often looked to as one of the main bases for Christian apologetics. L touched on apologetics last week. Do you know what I mean when I say Christian apologetics? It could sound like we're trying to find all the different ways to say I'm sorry, but that's not what Christian apologetics is. Christian apologetics is a defense of the faith. 
See, in verse 15, when you see being prepared to make a defense, the Greek word there is apologia. That's where we get the word apologetics. It's a defense, a defense of the faith, a defense of Christianity. And I want to be clear, this passage is a reasonable basis for engaging in apologetics. That's a good thing to do. But I don't think that's primarily what Peter has in mind. Because we have to remember why Peter's writing. Christians are suffering. They're being persecuted. He's telling them how to live in the midst of suffering. I don't think he has in mind this specific academic study of apologetics. The main thrust of the passage is not just about making a defense. What Peter wants us to see in this passage is found at the end of verse 15. The reason for the hope that is in you. Why do we have hope? Why as Christians do we have hope? The simplest, shortest way to answer that question is one word, Jesus. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is why we have hope. The gospel is why we have hope. Peter's main purpose in this passage is actually tied to evangelism. This is his message for us this morning. Be ready to share the gospel. That's what he wants us to take away. Be ready to share the gospel. And he's going to point to three different aspects of being ready to share the gospel. Be ready to share the gospel even when you suffer. Be ready to share the gospel at all times. And be ready to share the gospel with gentleness and respect. Be ready to share the gospel even when you suffer at all times and with gentleness and respect. First, Peter tells us, be ready to share the gospel even when you suffer. Look with me at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? What Peter's doing here is he's closing out a thought from the previous section. In the previous verses in chapter 3, he's quoting Psalm 34 that we read in our call to worship. And he's quoting that to make the point that God is against those who do evil. So when he follows that with this question in verse 13, we see that it's rhetorical. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? The implied answer is no one. It's not normal for someone to suffer for doing good. But here's the thing. Peter recognizes that it still happens. Christians suffer for doing good all the time. And that continues to happen today. So Peter reminds Christians how to respond when you suffer. You need to be ready to share the gospel. But why? Why should we respond this way? Look with me at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. What Peter's doing here is he's putting our suffering in perspective. Christians are blessed If you are in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, you are blessed, not only in this life, but in the life to come. So what does that mean for us? How does this impact our experience of suffering? We'll look at the end of verse 14 and end of verse 15. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. What Peter's saying is that Christians don't have to fear those who cause our suffering. 
If you are in Christ, then there is ultimately nothing for you to be afraid of. So if we don't fear, then what do we do? What's right there in the text? In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. But I have to ask you to think about that for a second. Does that response make sense? Don't fear those who are opposed to you, those who are persecuting you, those who cause your suffering. Don't fear them. Rather, in your hearts, honor Christ as holy. Put it in a different context related to fear for a second. Imagine that you go into your children's rooms at bedtime, and they're scared of the dark. And your response to them is, it's okay, kids, don't fear. Honor Christ the Lord is holy. Do you think in that moment that they would understand that? Would that particular phrase be comforting to them? It probably wouldn't make sense, which is why we need to really understand what Peter is saying to see how comforting the answer really is. And the first thing that we have to recognize is that Peter adds, in your hearts here, because in the Bible, the heart is who you truly are. It's the core of a person Peter's saying that to respond to the type of persecution that you'll experience as a Christian, you have to have more than an intellectual knowledge of Christ. You have to have a deep commitment to him, a love for him. More than that, a gratefulness for what he's done. You know, it's unfortunate that in the church today, we hear so much talk about the difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. Do you ever hear that? You know, he's got so much head knowledge but he just doesn't get it in his heart. Or, oh, she really, she gets it in her heart. She's got it emotionally. But there's just no head knowledge there. There's no intellectual knowledge. You know, the problem with that is the Bible never makes that distinction. In the Bible, there's no head knowledge without heart knowledge. In the Bible, there's also no heart knowledge without head knowledge. In the Bible's view, you have both or you have neither. When you're suffering, especially if it's at the hands of other people, Peter tells you to honor Christ as holy. And one commentator gets to the heart of why this is so comforting. Listen to what he says. The antidote to the fear of men is awareness of the glory of the Lord himself. Do you hear that? The antidote to the fear of men is awareness of the glory of the Lord himself. When you suffer, when you are tempted to fear men, the answer is not just to be courageous. The answer is not just to be tough. The answer is actually to look to Jesus. Look at his glory. Look at his holiness. Look at what he's done. And this leads to Peter's main point in the passage. Look at verse 15 again. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. What Peter's doing is he is saying, when you suffer, Christian, when you suffer, remember who you are. If you're in Christ, you have nothing to fear because Christ died the death that you deserve. If you're in Christ then your eternity is secure. And this has to lead to gratefulness. Be prepared to make a defense. Yes, defend the gospel. There's a call to apologetics here. But the emphasis is on the reason for the hope that is in you. Why are you hopeful? 
Why do you have nothing to fear? Jesus, you're hopeful because you were dead in sin, but now you're alive in Christ. You have nothing to fear because Christ defeated death. Christian, be ready to share the gospel even when you suffer. Now, as I say that, it is important to acknowledge that there are many wonderful apologetic arguments out there. And I want to look just briefly at one. I want to look at New Testament manuscript evidence. You know, the New Testament was written in the first century, and immediately it began being copied. And so New Testament manuscript evidence looks at how many early copies are there out there of the New Testament. Now, this is important because if you only have one copy, it's possible that that was made by a really bad scribe, and it could be full of errors. But if you have hundreds, maybe thousands of copies, you can compare them against each other. You can see where a scribe simply misspelled a word or where he added a word by mistake. Now, for an ancient document like the Bible, having 10 to 20 manuscripts still available is excellent. So for someone like Plato, who's another ancient writer, if you have 10 to 20 copies of one of his works, that is outstanding Those copies may even be from more than a thousand years after he lived, but 10 to 20 copies is great. And that's really the most that we have of any other first century document. But do you know how many early copies, how many manuscripts of the New Testament we have today? 5,800. That's just the Greek manuscripts. If you add Latin, that's another 9,000. If you add Syriac, Ethiopic and other languages, that's another seven to 8,000 manuscripts. Almost 22,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. The numbers are staggering. And that is very good. That is very helpful. But is that manuscript evidence the reason for the hope that is in you? When you suffer, does your hope rest in thousands of manuscripts? That's not what brings you hope. Jesus brings you hope. So how do you find that hope in the midst of suffering? Where do you go to meet Jesus? You read God's Word. Immerse yourself in Scripture. If you just live in your head or you turn to the wisdom of the world, you'll find yourself lost. You'll dive into despair. Brothers and sisters, your hope is firmly in Jesus, and you're reminded of that every time you engage God's Word. Be ready to share the gospel, even when you suffer. Secondly, Peter tells us to be ready to share the gospel at all times. Look with me again at verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. When are we to be ready to give a defense? When are we supposed to tell people about the hope that is in us? When are we supposed to be ready to share the gospel? Always. It's really significant that Peter uses that word there. Always. It means that Peter is concerned about every detail of our daily lives. And that's not it. We're not just to be ready to give a defense at all times. 
Who are we to be ready to give a defense to? Well, the text says anyone. We're to be ready to share the gospel at all times, and we're to be ready to share the gospel with anyone. Now, that's a pretty broad application that Peter is making here. He's saying that for the Christian, there's no off time. If anyone asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, then you're called to be ready to share the gospel. Peter is calling Christians not to passivity or neutrality, but to active Christian witness. And this witness is not just verbal. You know, L pointed out last week that our conduct is an apologetic. And he's right. The first way that you commend the gospel to a non-believer is through love. When you love others, when you live a life that is thoroughly changed by the gospel, you prompt non-believers to ask the question, what's different? What's different about him? What's different about her? You begin to share the gospel simply by loving your neighbor. You live your life in a way that honors Christ as holy and it'll look odd to non-believers. There's no other way to say it. It looks odd to a non-believer when a Christian does something that is selfless. As self-centered as our culture is today, it looks odd to a non-Christian when you show interest in their lives. When you ask them questions about themselves rather than just talking about yourself, it prompts them to ask, what is different about him? What is different about her? And that provides a wonderful opportunity. It provides an opportunity for you to share the gospel. It might even provide you, provide you with an opportunity to invite them to church. Be ready to share the gospel at all times. Tom Rainer is a Christian researcher who spent a lot of his time studying evangelism. And he has a particular interest in studying non-believers. In his book, The Unchurched Next Door, he divides those who are unchurched into five groups. And he names each of these beginning with a U. He starts with U1. This is a person that is highly receptive to the gospel. They may even be on the verge of coming to faith. And then he goes U2, U3, U4, all the way to U5, which is someone who is highly resistant to the gospel. And typically, they are antagonistic to both Christians and the church. Now, in all of his research, Rayner found that 82% of the unchurched, that is all of these groups, U1 to U5, those most receptive to the gospel, to those least receptive to the gospel, 82% of this group is at least somewhat likely to attend church if they're invited. Of those that Rayner considers U1s or U2s, these are those that are receptive or highly receptive to the gospel. That number jumps to 97%. 97% of that group, they're still not believers, they are unchurched, but 97% of that group is at least somewhat likely to come to church if you invite them. Even the groups that are the least receptive to the gospel are somewhat likely or very likely to attend. For you fours, this is who he defines as those who are resistant to the gospel, but they're not antagonistic to it. 62% of this group said they're somewhat likely to attend church if invited. Even for the antagonistic U5s, 
20% of them, one out of every five, is likely to come to church if you invite them. Isn't that amazing? But see, there's a problem. In Rainer's research, he found that only 21% of Christians invite anyone, a believer or non-believer, to church over the course of a year. Now, that was surprising to me, but this next number to me is stunning. In Rainer's research, he found that only 2% of Christians had invited an unchurched person to church over the last year. Only 2% of Christians invite a non-Christian to church each year. That was shocking to me the first time that I read it. Because Peter tells us to be ready to share the gospel at all times with anyone. Which is why we've got to begin to look at our lives differently. See, Rainer calls his book The Unchurched Next Door for a reason. Because many of you have neighbors who are not Christians. Many of you work with people who are not Christians. Many of the parents of your children's friends are not Christians. Brothers and sisters, you might have an opportunity to put the gospel before them at some point. At some point, you might be able to invite them to church. And I ask you simply, what's the worst that can happen? They say no. Maybe they think you're odd. To be honest, we should hope that non-Christians think that we're odd. Because it provides opportunities. It gives us opportunities to point them to Jesus. Love your neighbors. Be hospitable to them. Reach out to them when they're sick or they're going through something difficult. Just be present with them. But at some point, share the gospel with them. Invite them to church. Maybe even offer to pick them up and sit with them. And I don't tell you to invite them to church because this is a perfect place. Far from it. Because Redeemer and every other church is full of sinners. That's what we all are. But I can promise you this. In this pulpit each week, our pastors are going to faithfully preach the Word of God. If you invite someone to Redeemer, they're going to hear the gospel. And that's important because the preached Word is the primary means that the Holy Spirit uses to bring people to faith. Brothers and sisters, we believe that God is sovereign. We believe that He is in control. We believe, as Scripture teaches, that He has chosen His people from before the foundation of the world. That is true. But God has also chosen His church as the vehicle that the Holy Spirit will use to bring His people to faith. Be ready to share the gospel at all times. Third and finally, Peter tells us to be ready to share the gospel with gentleness and respect. And this point is really important following the last one. Because we do need to be ready to share the gospel at all times with anyone. But the way that we do it is very important. Look again at verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter's saying the way that we engage non-Christians matters. The way that we engage non-Christians commends the gospel. We have to have a proper attitude toward anyone we're going to share the gospel with. We need to be gentle. We need to demonstrate respect. We need to show interest in their lives. 
The word translated gentleness here is very closely tied to meekness and humility. This is the way that Christians are to make a defense of the faith. This is the way to share the gospel. And it means that we have to be thoughtful. When it's tied together with respect, it reminds us that we're always approaching those who are made in the image of God. You will never share the gospel with someone who is not an image bearer. More than that, you will never have a conversation with someone who is not made in the image of God. And this demands gentleness, it demands humility, it demands respect. And Peter says that behaving in this way, it keeps our consciences clear. Look with me at verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. When we treat others with gentleness and respect, it keeps our consciences clear. Even if someone slanders you, do you know what slander is? There are two aspects to slander. Slander is both damaging and it's false. So if someone says, you know, I can't believe that Wright Bushing likes to wear socks with sandals, that's not slander. It may be damaging, it may make me look bad, but it's not false, it's true. <laughs> slander is something that is damaging and it's also false. It affects your reputation in a way that is unjust because it's not true. So why are we supposed to respond this way? With gentleness and respect. Surely God would understand that when someone slanders us, we've got to get them back, right? Look back at verse 16 again. We are to respond with gentleness and respect so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Gentle, humble, respectful behavior. It puts those who slander you to shame. It's possible that it silences the slander. And on top of that, it may commend the gospel to them. They may be so surprised that you respond in this way that you end up with an opportunity to share the gospel. Even when someone slanders you, when they speak falsely against you in a way that harms you, you are still called to be ready to share the gospel. You do this not only through actually telling them about the gospel with your words, telling them about Jesus and what he's done, but you do this by the way that you live. This is alluded to again in this little proverb that Peter gives us in verse 17. Look with me back at the text. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter's saying that it is better to wrongfully suffer persecution than it is to suffer for breaking God's law. And it's not just better because it seems obvious. It's better because suffering for doing good can be a powerful Christian witness. God uses Christian suffering for the salvation of others. The way that you live, the way that you respond when difficult things happen, it can be powerful. Peter tells us to be gentle. He tells us to be respectful. He's telling us to love our neighbor. We're called to be ready to share the gospel, and how we do that matters. How we do that has eternal significance. 
Be ready to share the gospel with gentleness and respect. In his book, Questioning Evangelism, Randy Newman points to the effectiveness of answering questions that people who are hostile to Christianity ask with questions. So if someone is hostile to Christianity and they are responding in a negative way to you, Newman is saying that it's helpful to respond with a question. So he tells this story about a young man who is angry about the exclusivity claim of the gospel. Do you know what that is? That's the claim that Christ is the only way to salvation. That's a true claim. It's a thoroughly biblical claim. Now Newman is sharing with a group of non-believers and a young man in the group He almost yells back at Newman. So you think everyone who believes other religions is going to hell? And rather than getting defensive, Newman gently responds, do you believe in hell? Now the guy's surprised, but he gathers himself and he says, of course not. Hell's ridiculous. And then I want you to hear this. Newman brilliantly, he uses this guy's own words and responds back to him. He says, then why are you asking me such a ridiculous question? Now this guy and the others in the room are completely taken aback by Newman's tactic. They're completely disarmed. So much so that it leads to a wonderful discussion about God's holiness, our sin, and Jesus' atoning death. Newman's questions were gentle. They were respectful. He even used the same words that this young man did. Do you know where Randy Newman came up with this idea of answering questions with questions? He didn't. It comes directly out of the gospel accounts of Jesus. It's not new. Newman studied every question that was asked of Jesus and noticed that answering a question with a question was the norm. I think that we often get caught off guard when someone is hostile to Christianity. Brothers and sisters, remember that you don't have to have all the answers. And if you don't have the answer in a specific moment, it's okay to tell someone that you're going to do some research and get back to them. It's also okay to keep asking them questions. Continue probing their heart. Find out why they're so hostile to Christianity. Peter tells us to be ready to share the gospel when you suffer at all times and with gentleness and respect. Now, even though there are all these different places and situations where you can and should share the gospel or even invite someone to church, we have to be thoughtful about the way that we do it. But we can't let thoughtfulness become passivity. Does that ever happen to you? You get so nervous about making a decision that you just keep thinking about it more and more. You make another pro and con list. Ask my wife if that ever happens to me. It happens on Friday nights just picking a movie. I get paralyzed. I just want more time and more information to make a decision. Look, it's good to be wise. It is good to be thoughtful. We're commanded to be gentle and show respect, and this often requires a tremendous amount of patience, but we're also commanded to act. For those of you in the room who are not Christians, maybe you're confused or you're questioning. 
Maybe at some point something happened in the church that hurt you and so you left. Maybe you're here because you're still not sure who Jesus is. Regardless of why you're here, I'm glad you're here and I hope you come back. And I also want to make sure that I'm clear. God doesn't save us because we do things like share the gospel with people. He doesn't save us because of our obedience. He doesn't save us based on anything we do. We are all helpless sinners. God saves us because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you come to faith in Jesus, then your sin was dealt with on the cross. And more than that, Jesus' obedient life, his perfectly obedient life, is credited to you. In God's eyes, it looks like you had never sinned and you were perfectly obedient, but not because of you, because of Jesus. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You can't hear that too many times. But in the passage that we read in Matthew earlier, Jesus also says that a good tree can't bear bad fruit. He says that a good tree bears good fruit. When you come to faith in Christ, you're called to something other than passivity. You're called to be more than a consumer. You are called to good works. You're called to love God and love neighbor. But you don't do good works to be saved. You do good works because you have been saved. Because you're grateful. Be ready to share the gospel, not because that makes you acceptable to God. Be ready to share the gospel because you have been accepted by God. Brothers and sisters, be ready to share the gospel because you've come to faith in Jesus. You've experienced God's grace and you want others to experience that same grace. You want them to experience that same life. You want them to spend eternity with Jesus. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your words that are true. We are thankful that they still speak to us today. Father, we do ask for courage as we go into a world to act as witnesses to non-believers. We ask that our lives would demonstrate the truth of the gospel. Father, for those in here who are not believers, who are questioning, who are curious, continue to spark that curiosity in them. Bring them back week after week to hear your word and bring them to faith. Father, I ask as we sing now that we would glorify you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.